And together what we will do is we will discover our true purpose. You know, A.W. Tozer, uh, the great theologian and writer of the Christian faith, he wrote a great book called Whatever Happened to Worship. It's a compilation of many of his messages and his devotions. And in it he says these really um, sobering but I think enlightening at the same time words on worship. Listen to what he says. Tozer says this, God's Word tells us frankly of the great injury that we suffered resulting in our numbing amnesia. It is the sad record of man's fall from the perfections of his original state. When Adam and Eve decided in that early morning that they had a right to put their own wills above the will of their Creator God, they experienced a terrible fall. The result? They lost their God-given identity. They tried to shake the fog out of their minds and out of their beings, but as they looked at each other, they realized that they no longer knew the purpose of their existence. They had suddenly been afflicted with a strange amnesia, precipitated by their willful sin of disobedience. They no longer knew precisely where they were. They no longer held that divine sense of what they were created to be and what they were created to do. He calls it a spiritual amnesia. And it all goes back to what we call, as Christians, the fall from Adam and Eve when there was this separation because of sin and disobedience from God the Creator. And what happened at that moment as he describes is Adam and Eve and then all the rest of us down through the ages have sort of experienced a spiritual amnesia not recognizing any longer our place in God's story and His creation and the very purpose for which we were created. And of course we have an understanding of amnesia where people sort of lose track of who they are and forget who they are, their surroundings, the people around them, or even why they are who they are. And he says, it's kind of like that with us with God, that we have experienced this amnesia and forgetting who we are and who the God is, more importantly, that we were once connected to and that sin and disobedience has separated us from. And so, if we're going to spend a few weeks looking at worship, I believe it's most important that we first begin with looking at the object of worship. Who is it that we're worshiping? Before we talk about musical styles, before we talk about um, why we worship and how we do it, before we even get into other scriptures that talk to us about the true nature and purpose of worship, shouldn't we first start with who it is that we're worshiping? Because worship has an object. I mean, we all worship something or somebody. I mean, the great poet Bob Dylan said it once, didn't he? you got to serve somebody. We all worship something or somebody. Why? Because simply worship is, as I said earlier, ascribing worth to something or to someone. It means we're recognizing by the things we say and do 
that this person, whoever it is in our life, or whatever thing it might be, that we set on a pedestal, that they are greater than we are, that they deserve to be honored and glorified and worshipped and set apart from everything else. Now, we can do that with other people in our lives, can't we? We might not recognize that that's what we're actually doing, we're worshipping, but we can do that in relationships. We can do it with things, whether it's money or it's job or prestige or fame, all those things we might talk about. It might even be our bodies, our health. It might be our intellect. Things that we set before the actual Creator. Things that we set up on a pedestal that we are giving worth to and that we are, in a way, giving devotion to. But if us as believers are to understand the true nature of worship, we need to first start with looking at the One who we are to be worshiping because that is going to set in motion everything else that we understand about worship and its place in the life of the church and the life of each individual believer and remember the idea is to go way beyond the way and the way that we express worship like through music but to get truly to dig down and look at the heart of worship um, if you've been around for a while as a Christian, you'll remember an old, uh, an older, it's old now, worship song by Matt Redman called The Heart of Worship. Remember that? And he kind of wrote it out of this experience of saying, what does music mean to him? Because he was, had been a worship leader in a church for a long time and written a lot of songs that many churches around the world were using. And he had kind of come to this point in his church to this idea of saying, Is it about the music? Or maybe we've gotten caught up in just something simple as the music and forgotten about who it is we're worshiping and what motivates us. So he wrote the words to that song and just starting out by saying, when the music fades and all is stripped away, I simply come. Right? The idea is we strip it all away and say, why do we worship? And who is it that we're worshiping? And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So who is this God that we say we are worshiping? Because if Tozer is right and we have this sort of spiritual amnesia, then that's what sin has done. One of the effects of sin is that as it separated us from our Creator, we have forgotten our true purpose and reason for even being created by God in the first place. But then as believers, being reconnected to God through Christ, we then have the ability, the great freedom to understand what it means to worship in every day learning more and more about the God that we are worshiping. See, that's how it's supposed to work, church, is that the more we learn about God, the object of our worship, Doesn't it then stand to reason that the deeper we're going to be able to go into worship, the richer our time of worship will be, whether it's through song or music, or it's getting in our prayer closet, or it's opening God's Word? Then we're going to grow deeper in our understanding of why we're motivated to worship, just like that great video did. It just simply with power, but with simplicity. Just listed one after another after another the great attributes of our God and Savior, didn't it? 
I, I feel like we should wake up and watch that video every morning, right? And then I think we'll be motivated during the day to keep our eyes focused on Him so that we don't worship anybody or anything else. Because He alone certainly is worthy. So that's what we want to do for just a, a brief time this morning. I'm going to do it in two ways. I want to look at Psalm 145. What a great way to talk about worship by looking at one of the Psalms. And you know, it's interesting. I was sharing this morning with some people that came earlier um, to, to pray. We were talking about this idea, uh, as I mentioned, about um, worship in the Old Testament and the New Testament and how the New Testament doesn't say anything about music or instruments, but I think it's because God is giving us that freedom to worship God still with the true words, because there's a lot of singing, but in a musical style that kind of fits the context of the people and, and, and what we're comfortable with and where we live and all that. So it doesn't even mention the different instruments. But see, there's also this sense of worship in the Scriptures, the Old and the New Testament, that especially we are to bring to worship God the words that we say. I mean, when we worship and we have a band up here playing, we put the words up, the big words, right, so that we can all see it. And the idea is we sort of, we, we have the band leading, but it's sort of like a conduit to lead us to the truth of the words. And you kind of notice what is above what the words would be, what's above the screen, it's the cross. The idea is that that's where our attention and focus goes, but our words help us to get there. So the words of Scripture are what's most important to help us understand worship. And so we're going to look at words today, God's words about Himself. What better way to look at the Psalms? Now it's an, also an interesting uh, observation that, you know, we have the songbook of the Hebrews. We have the songbook of the people of Israel in the Psalms, right? We have these great songs. And you know, if you've read through the Psalms, I mean, sometimes it's, it's interesting to say, wow, they sang these words, they even rhyme half the time. But that's a case in point, right? That it was for a different, a unique culture and sort of ethnicity and people, and it worked well for them, okay? But we might look at it and say, well, this isn't sort of our style. We couldn't sing this. Well, that's okay. And so maybe we take the words of God and we put it in a different format and we add some music to it, but it's still the very Word of God. But when we see the Old Testament Psalms, um, you know that if you read them, you'll see there's also musical annotations and musical direction. It'll often say like for the, the choir director, the one who's going to lead the singing and the music. But you ever notice how what we don't have is we don't have the music. We don't have the melodies. Not even our Jewish friends have it. That has been lost to history. We have the very words of God, the words of these great songs, but not even the people whose ancestors sang to them know what the melodies were or the music that went along with it. So there is great freedom that we have to take the Word of God and use it as an expression through music or maybe just reading it like I did a few minutes ago. Because it's all focused on the words. And so what I want to do is I'm going to read through, just um, highlight some parts of this psalm. It'll be up on the screen for you. But if you want to look at it in your Bibles, it's all of Psalm 145. 
And I want to highlight some things because what we're looking at again this morning is what does God's Word say about Him, about Himself. Because if we're going to talk about worship, we need to start with who is it that we're worshiping? Who is this God? So we will look at His nature and His characteristics and the very attributes of God that should be our motivation to worship. It's not the kind of music we sing. It's not where we're doing it, which we'll look at in John 4 in another, in another message in the series. But it is the God that we worship. He's the object of our very worship. So Psalm 145, it says it's a psalm of praise of David. There's different kinds of psalms. There's psalms of lament when there were things that weren't going so well for the writer. Here is a psalm of praise. And David simply says, I will exalt you. And exalt means to set apart, to praise. Usually it means to praise loudly with exuberance. So right off the bat, we're saying, get excited people. We're praising God, our Creator. He says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. So He is God. That's that word Elohim. There's many different names for God. Elohim is the name for the great Creator. The powerful Creator. Elohim. It's the first name of God that we see in Scripture. Go back to Genesis. It's the first one that you'll see. He says, I will exalt you, my God, the King. So what does it mean that He is the King? What does it tell us about God? That He's the ruler over all. Is that what a King is? The King's the one who's in charge, right? I mean, the King sits on His throne, right? Usually in the castle, Right? And he has citizens, subjects, servants. And the king is supposed to rule, but also in his rule he cares and protects his people. See, he's the one that raises up an army and says, I'm going to protect my people. We're going to provide for them. But he's also the one who demands to be honored and revered. And so the psalmist is saying, David's saying, I will exalt you, my God. You're the king. So right away we see one of the attributes of God. He is the king. He is the ruler over all. I'll praise your name on Sunday mornings. No. He says, I'll praise your name forever and ever. Every day. Every day I will praise you. There's an aspect of worship. We're worshiping the God who is king, but we're worshiping him every day. Not just for 20 minutes on a Sunday morning. He says, and extol your name forever and ever. He says it again. And then in verse 3, great. Do you ever think about, like, how do you define great? Well, it's not good. It's not okay. It's great. How would we even define great? We'll say God is great. What does it mean that He's great? When something is great and we say that's great, it means it's better than everything else, doesn't it? It means it's better than average. But we don't want to say, well, God's just better than average. <laughs> but it says God is great. It gives us this great visual. right? So He's a king and He's great. He's a great king. He's not just a king. He's a great king. He's the king of all kings. See, He's the greatest of all kings. If you could rank all kings in all gods, if there were other gods, He would be the greatest. He would be the best. Great is the Lord, and He's most worthy of praise. So He is the one that's worthy. The most worthy of anything else. 
or anybody else in our lives. How great is he? You can't even fathom it. And then this one, number four, uh, verse four. One generation commends your works to another. They tell of your mighty acts. What a wonderful verse to remember. That's a reason that we worship this great God. So we can tell other people. Did you ever think about that? I mean, as people are walking into our, our, our meeting place here, our sanctuary on a Sunday morning, and let's say people are walking in and they don't yet know Jesus, and they're searching. Maybe somebody invited them and they're here just to kind of see what's going on. They don't yet know Jesus. And they walk in and they see us singing loud, singing loud, worshiping. And we got a band going and we got drums going and we got music going. My hope would be that somebody would see what true believers do. Wow, this is what Christians do. They're worshiping their God. See? That's the idea. And that in itself. We have all of our young ones here. You notice that? We don't invite our kids to go to, um, to their time of worship and learning until after the worship. We let them. We invite them to worship God. Why? So we can tell the older generation to tell the younger generation to show them by example of God's mighty works because that's what we're singing about. See? We are then commending God and His mighty works to the next generation. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty. So God is king and he's a great king. He is also majestic. It's like a royal power majesty. He is, he is a royal power and he is beautiful. That's why he is majestic. Sometimes we might use that word for like a sunrise or a sunset, right? Majestic. Why? It's just so beautiful. You can't even describe it. Remember, for a year we lived in Florida on the, on the southwest coast, and, and uh, we would often go to see the, um, the sunset, beautiful sunsets. And remember the first time we did that, there was a bunch of people just scattered on the beach watching, hanging out, and, and after it finally went down, people clapped. They were clapping. How many of them probably weren't even believers, but yet they were clapping because what they just saw, they couldn't even express in words. All they could do is this. Right? How beautiful, how majestic. That's the God that we worship. It says, I'll meditate on your wonderful works. So he's the one that is majestic, but he does wonderful works for his people. It says, those wonderful works tell of his power. So he's a powerful, great king who is beautiful and majestic. And he does great deeds. Verse 7, they celebrate your abundant goodness. So this God is good. He is good by nature. He is righteous. He is gracious, verse 8 says. He is compassionate. He's slow to anger, which means He's merciful. He's rich in love. Are you getting a picture of the God that we are called to worship? The One that created us so that we could bring Him glory and worship Him. Again, we were created to worship. Let's not lose sight of our very purpose you know, we all struggle with that. What's my purpose in life? What's my calling? What's God's will for my life? And that's all good. But it should start from the foundation of I have been created to bring glory to God. Because I am the creation and we have a creator 
And so the creation should honor and worship the Creator. Now again, sin has separated us from that. Tozer calls it a spiritual amnesia. As believers, the more we get into His Word and read things like Psalm 145, the more we'll be reminded of who this God is that will motivate us to say, yes, He alone is worthy because He's good and righteous and gracious and compassionate and merciful and is full of love and He is love Himself. Verse 11 says that they will tell of His glory, of His kingdom, and speak of His might. So He is mighty. He is a good king, a majestic king. He is a mighty king. One who rules. He is trustworthy, it says in verse 13. In all His promises, so we can trust Him because He is trustworthy and faithful. You know, in, uh, when we do pre-marriage counseling, Claudia and I, we often one of the first things that we'll say is to say, remember that your future spouse that's sitting next to you can never fulfill all of your needs. Only God can do that. Because even the ones we love most will let us down, won't they? We've experienced that. Why? Because we're sinners and we're imperfect. But the God that we are to worship is perfect. And His goodness is perfect. He is completely trustworthy. He will never let us down. And He is completely faithful. You know, we read in the Old Testament, the people of God, the people of Israel, had, had been unfaithful to Him time and time again. Time and time again in that relationship. Yet we are called to be faithful, but looking at His faithfulness Because His faithfulness is perfect. Verse 14, as we continue on, says the Lord upholds us. So verses 14 to 19 is this great section of where this God we just described gets very personal. This glorious, majestic, good and righteous King is also a King who loves His people. It says the Lord upholds, in verse 14, all who fall. And lifts up all who are bowed down. Isn't that wonderful? That's one of the great, we're going to look at over our series, one of the great pictures of worship. That there are a couple of words. Proskuneo is the the word in Greek. There's another one in in, in Hebrew that shakah actually is what it's called. You know what they mean? It means to bow down. It means to surrender, to submit. That's the word for worship in the original language. Isn't that great? That's the idea. So when it says that the Lord uh, lifts up all who are bowed down, He will lift you up as you submit yourself humbly to Him and surrender. That's the picture of worship. But see, He is good because He upholds us. When we fall down, He lifts us up. Isaiah 41.10, right? Lifts, hold us up with His righteous right hand. And He goes on to say in verse 16, you open your hand You satisfy the desires of every living thing. Isn't that a great picture? He opens His hands. right? When you have something to give to somebody, say, here, here it is. You open your hands. That's what God is saying. He's a a great king. A majestic king. But He opens His hands to His people. And says, "He's He's a giving king. He is a good king. Remember what that video said about, that's my king. That's the king that we serve, right? The Lord is near to all who call on Him. Verse 18. He fulfills the desires of those who fear Him. 
He hears their cries and saves them. Isn't that beautiful? This is the God that we worship and serve. This great, mighty, awesome, powerful, majestic King takes care of our basic needs. Wonderful. In verse 20, as we kind of bring it to a close, the Lord watches over all who love Him. He will destroy the wicked. So He is also a judge. He is also a judge. And so He will judge sin. But that's part of His righteousness. We'll get to that in a second. And then finally, the psalmist closes the way he opened. My mouth will speak praise to the Lord. Let every creature praise His holy name forever and ever. That's the way he started. He said, I'm going to praise you forever and ever. And then he goes on to say who God is. And he says, I'm going to praise you forever and ever. That's worship. That should be part of who we are. That we are doing it all the time. Worshiping God. I often say that when we gather on a Sunday morning, it's the first day of the new week. It's the first morning. This should be the beginning of your week full of worship. And so when you've come here, you've come here maybe weary from the week at work and from the world just kind of beating you down, but you've been worshiping God regardless. And you come on a Sunday morning to be encouraged and and filled up again. But that's what God does when we offer ourselves to Him. See, when we empty ourselves and submit ourselves and lay our burdens down at His feet, then He fills us, right? That's the way it works. So we make room for Him to do that. That's what we pray. Holy Spirit, fill us as we surrender. See, that's the way we get filled by surrender. That's the posture and the nature of worship. So now what I'd like to do in just our remaining time together is I just want to briefly highlight, and if you're taking notes I'll give some references along the way too. But I just want to highlight 15 different attributes of this God. And I'm going to do this because this is what should motivate us to worship. Again, if we're going to talk about worship over the next five weeks, then we need to start with who is it that we're worshiping? Before we get into anything else about the character and nature and purpose of worship, let's look at the God we are worshiping. First and foremost... We need to start with what the Bible says about God. Oftentimes, people make up, they kind of take a little bit from the Bible, a little bit from other things, a little bit from how they think God should be, and they say, I understand God. Right? I saw this bumper sticker once, it's got the fingers like this, it says, me and God are like this. Now that's good, but sometimes people mean it to say, me and God, we have an understanding. Did you ever hear that? We're good. It's like what we're saying is you cannot understand God apart from what He has decided to reveal about Himself. See? And so how do we know what God has revealed about Himself? It's in the Scriptures. It's in those Bibles that you're holding in your hand. See? That's His very Word to us. That's Him revealing Himself. When we look at the person of Jesus Christ, Jesus says, "If if you have seen Me, you have seen the Father. So Jesus, the incarnate God, is for us to see the Father. But also His Word, I mean, doesn't it say at the beginning of the Gospel, right? In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word is God, right? I mean, that's the idea that Jesus is the living Word, capital W. And so, first and foremost, before we even look at it, we say, where are we getting this from? We're getting it from the Scriptures and nowhere else. So we cannot sort of make up who God is, or decide on our own 
the nature of God. That's why so many people struggle. Now we do too, when we forget the nature and, and true characteristics of God, but so many people struggle with why God allows things to happen. They say that can't be God allowing this. Because God would never allow this. God wouldn't do this. God wouldn't make this or allow this to happen. Well, that is based on what? I mean, we need to look at what the Scriptures say about who God is. Because this and this alone, the Old and the New Testament together, is God's revelation to us as people. And I believe, and it's part of the statement of faith, the doctrine here at Trinity, that after revelation was written that what we call the canon was closed, there is no more special revelation from God. Now, He can reveal Himself to us, but it's always through what we already know in His Word. Right? So if you hear people saying, teachers or whoever else saying, God gave me a Word today, okay, let Him speak that Word to you. But it has to jive with what's in Scripture. Because God doesn't give special revelation to people anymore. God has done it through His Word. So that's what we need, see? And so therefore, we go to the Word of God. And so we cannot, apart from the authority of the Bible, ever attempt to explain who God is or His attributes. It's not about our opinion or what we believe He should be or what we think He is. It's what Scripture says. So here's what it says. First, I'm going to highlight it says that He is light. See Isaiah 60, James 1. It simply means that He is self-revealing. Again, He has revealed Himself. That's a choice that He has made. God revealed Himself to us. Just just meditate on that for a second. You think about that? The God of the universe, the Creator of all things, chooses to reveal Himself to us as people. Why? Ultimately because He wants to get the glory. Right? But He reveals Himself to us. He reveals Himself as light. Just the fact that he revealed knowledge of Himself. We should read His Word to get to know Him. We look in creation. Just look at the first chapter of Genesis and you'll be motivated to worship because He is a great artist, a great Creator God. And He created us to be a part of that creation. So yes, so He is revealed as light. He created light. He is light. He is our Creator. And we're a part of His creation. Elohim. One of His words, the first name for God, means a strong one, the divine one, the mighty God, the mighty Creator. We also see the name for God, Adonai, in our community groups. We looked at a bunch of these names recently. Adonai means Lord, indicating that He is our Master and we are His servants. Another reason to worship Him. There, of course, is Jehovah or Yahweh. He is the Lord I Am. He is self-existent. We can't even wrap our minds around that. But He is self-existent. Nobody created Him. God is eternal. He's immortal. He never dies. He is infinite. He is Alpha and Omega. Right? The beginning and the end. He has no beginning. He has no end. Our God is eternal. This is the God that we are called to worship. He is omnipotent, which means He's all-powerful. He can do anything that pleases Him, but He'll never contradict Himself. Because His actions are always, always in accord with the rest of what He says, the rest of His attributes and His character. He's also omnipresent, which means He's everywhere. 
that God is present everywhere. But it doesn't mean that He is everything. You know, people that say, oh, look at that tree. That's God. No. But it means that God is everywhere. He's omnipresent. There's not one particular place where God is. We're going to see that in John 4 with Jesus and the woman at the well when He tells her that there is time, a time coming that now is. That people will worship neither on this mountain or that mountain. Jesus is trying to tell her all about worship. That it's not about where you are, it's about who you're worshiping. Right? So He is omnipresent. And we know as believers that we have the Holy Spirit within us. So therefore, God is always with us. Do you ever pray or even say like, uh, God is in this place. Thank you God for being here with us. Well, what are we really saying? Thank you God for being in us. Because where you go, there you are, right? We often say, uh, you know, we quote that scripture that says where two or three are gathered, your name, there I am in the midst of you. So does that mean that you need at least two people for God to show up? No. I mean, that's kind of taken out of context. It really has a lot to do with um, church discipline and, 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 and leaders making decisions. But aside from that, we recognize when we're saying that, I think what we really truly are trying to say is that God is here with us when we're about to pray. But we don't need a group of people to uh, give God permission to show up, right? The Holy Spirit lives within us, and so He is here, okay? And He is here with you. But God is omnipresent. He is omniscient, which means He's all-knowing. Past, present, and future. He knows what you're thinking right now. Okay? Just wanted to see the look on some of your faces when I said that. He knows what you're thinking right now. He knows you're thinking... It's 20 to 12. Okay. Um, hmm. He knows everything. But listen, you know what that also means? And we're gonna, we also say that God is just and He's righteous, right? But when, the fact that He's omniscient, He knows everything... That means that he is perfectly just because whatever he decides to do is fair. Do you ever kind of just say, oh, that's not fair. Life's not fair. Well, do you get to decide what's fair and what's not fair? God decides. See, but he is perfect in his justice and his righteousness because he is all-knowing. So if he's all-knowing, then therefore, whatever he decides, whatever his decrees are, they are perfectly fair. God is immutable. It means he's unchanging. Therefore, he can be trustworthy. Because he's immutable, which means he does not change. Therefore, we can trust him. Does that make sense? It's like when, you know, you know how you ever say like somebody that you know you have a relationship with and you're like, man, you've changed. You know, I used to be able to trust you or something like that. See, God doesn't change, so therefore we can trust Him. If you trusted God to provide you with money or a job today, then in 10 years, maybe you lose your job and you need more money. Can't you trust Him the same that you did back then? Just think about when God has blessed you and answered your prayers, and no matter how you think it was small or big, that same God is the same God today. So if you're in a position now where you've been praying for something, maybe it's healing Think back, when did God answer that prayer about a different thing? God healed me back then. He answered my prayer. God, yeah, He did give me that job that one time. Remember, I was praying and God provided for this and for that. Why would it be different now? Maybe we've changed and our faith has changed, but God has not changed. See? So God is immutable. He does not change. Therefore, He is completely and 100% trustworthy 100% of the time. A few more. 
God is also righteous means that any kind of sin, He cannot ignore it. He forgives it, but there still has to be punishment because He is perfectly righteous. He is righteous and just. So that is why, of course, God had to become man in the form of Jesus, the person of Jesus, to die on the cross. There had to be blood that was shed. So He had to come in bodily form, didn't He, for there to be blood to be shed on the cross. Because He is perfectly righteous. Because there needed to be payment for sin. Does that make sense? There needed to be payment for sin. And God set up from the very beginning, way back in Genesis, that it would take the shedding of blood to cover the sins. Remember He covered Adam and Eve? With animal skins. When he kicked them out of the garden, it says he covered them with animal skins, which means there would have been shed blood to, for, for God to sacrifice that animal on their behalf so they could be covered. Jesus is the perfect lamb that takes away the sins of the world. Because God is perfectly righteous. So he forgives our sins, but there needed to be payment for the sins And that's what Jesus Christ is. Do you know why one of the most powerful forms of worship, we don't always look at this way, is communion. The bread and the cup is a very powerful way of worshiping God. Jesus set that up the night before He was betrayed. He was teaching His disciples, do this in remembrance of Me, which means worship Me, give Me the honor and glory. He was saying that in a sense because this is My body, this is My blood which is given for you, and do this in remembrance of me. See, because God is righteous. And so His righteousness and His justice, it needed to be um, it needed to be fulfilled and completed and taken care of and satiated, but only by the shedding of blood. And Jesus did that once and for all. And so if you have believed in the Lord Jesus for salvation, then you don't need to keep asking for that. Once for all, we are saved. You don't need to then try to earn that salvation every day after that. You don't need to try to hold on to it like you're going to lose it because that grace is free. Free for us. Costs Jesus everything. A few more. God is not only righteous, but He is sovereign. That goes for Him being King. Like we said at the beginning of Psalm 145, God is sovereign, which means He is supreme. All of creation is under His feet. Nothing can ever disrupt His plans or His will. Remember we talked recently, as we were looking through Mark, about God's will? And Jesus said after He cursed the fig tree, and He was teaching Peter and the disciples about prayer, and He said, you pray in God's will. You pray it. Pray it like it already happened. Because if it's God's will, it's going to happen. Right? Right? That's because He's sovereign. So His will is going to be done. And nothing can thwart His plans. He's incomparable. I think that video we just saw was just perfect in that. He's incomparable. There was no one like Him. He's indescribable. I don't know if you caught that. It always makes me laugh. It's like halfway through the video, He goes and He's describing, this is who Jesus is. And then He says, I wish I could describe Him to you. You see that? And then He goes on to keep describing Him. But why does he say that? He's, he's saying, look, I'm giving you all these descriptions from Scripture, but you still can't describe him. He's indescribable. He's un- incomparable. There's no one like him. That's why he alone is worthy of our worship. God is just. God is spirit. 
He is invisible, but yet He is a God who is personal and knows us and loves us. Three more. God is gracious. And that includes His goodness, His kindness, His mercy and love that we looked at in Psalm 145. If it wasn't for God's grace or His holiness, right? We wouldn't even be able to approach Him. But because of His holiness, so therefore we need His grace in order to do that. God is truth. He not only speaks the truth, He is truth. Therefore, He is incorruptible. He cannot lie or contradict Himself. And finally, through all of that, God is holy. You know what holiness means? Separated. God is separated from all other gods that there may be or that we may create. He is pure, perfect, undefiled. And finally, if you ever want to read um, just a great passage, it's kind of unique. You want to read it, uh, a passage about the, the nature and picture of God, read Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12 describes God as a consuming fire. And even talks about the people of old that just were begging God, no more revelation because we can't take it because you are so great. You are a consuming fire. But He is a consuming fire who is also compassionate and merciful and loving and just and righteous. But He is holy. And the fact that He is all these things and we say that He is holy and perfect means that we cannot approach Him in any style of worship, no matter how we worship Him, music or not. We cannot approach a holy and perfect and righteous God who is a consuming fire except through the blood of Jesus Christ. See, that blood covers us. It covers us so when God sees us, He sees the blood of Christ because sin cannot enter into the presence of a perfect and holy and righteous God. So let us remember who it is that we are worshiping. However we worship, wherever we are worshiping, we are ascribing worth to Him who alone is worthy because He is all these things and so much more. And that in and of itself should be our motivation to worship our God, the one true God. Would you stand and pray with me? Father, we thank You for the power of Your Word. And that reminds us about who you are. God, in some way, we need a dose of this every day. That's why we look at your word. Because no matter what we're reading in the scriptures, from Genesis to Revelation, it will remind us somehow about who you are. The great king that you are. So majestic and powerful and righteous and holy, but yet loving and merciful and compassionate. We love that, God. And that draws us to You. It makes us fall down on our face. It makes us uh, just come before You and surrender and humility because then You tell us that You then lift us up. When we surrender and we bow down, You are then the lifter of our heads. Thank You, Lord God. Would You remind us of that all the time? Remind us about who You are and who we are worshiping. And that is why that's what motivates us. Simply, not only those great works You have done, but simply, first and foremost, because of who you are. We thank you, God, for our time together. May we spend these next few weeks just kind of 
just unpacking what it means to worship you and even in our daily devotions and throughout the week as we worship you individually through music and reading and prayer, Lord, that we would simply, whatever it looks like, we would be bringing you worth and praise because you are worthy. Amen.